Greetings. Um, I'm Ted Ruger, the Dean of the Law School. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here today and to, to welcome uh, our, our, our um, distinguished guest for this, uh, this event. Um, uh, we have, this is, you know, the issue of, of sexual violence is one that uh, is, is, is important and divisive and, and uh, I think as relevant now as it has been in, in decades past. It's, it's important uh, here in the United States, it's important on college campuses, it's important around the world, and it's, I think, particularly uh, poignant, important, relevant today um, in the context of armed conflict or terrorism uh, around the world, and we certainly see that, sadly, there is no shortage of examples uh, around the world, and I think our speaker will address many of these about the particular uh, problems and abuses involved with um, the kind of un, uh, unfortunate combination of war and armed, armed conflict and sexual violence, and, and, and the often intentional use of sexual violence and sexual terrorism in armed conflict situations. Um, we could have no better or important uh, speaker to address these topics with us here today, so I am very happy to, to welcome Under Secretary General uh, Zanab Bangura. Um, she will be more properly introduced by a colleague of mine in a minute, but, uh, but we're very happy to have you, um, Under Secretary Bangura. Um, this conference, uh, or sorry, this lecture, and the conference which is taking place concurrently these few days at the law school, reflects our commitment at Law to engage in the most important issues facing the, the nation and the world, uh, to address those issues with a combination of scholarly expertise, um, leaders of the world's and nation's most important institutions, um, experts from practice, from the military, from international institutions, from the United States and from other countries. Um, and it's, it's this mix of individuals which we have in this room today. Um, and and uh, I think uh, this, this lecture fits well with that. Um, I would introduce uh, a couple um, of my colleagues who are very important in pulling this together. First, uh, Claire Finkelstein, uh, the Algernon Biddle, a professor of law here and the founder and, and leader of, of CERL, the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law, which is a co-sponsor of this event. Um, Claire has been a visionary in bringing together um, scholars and, and uh, leaders in, in the academy, in the legal academy, in the philosophy academy, um, in other parts of higher education, as well as military leaders and, and uh, business leaders and uh, policy leaders um, to address a range of topics that are extremely important. Um, to, to today's lecture is, is one of those sort of sponsored events. I would note that we are also about to kick off over the next couple days an important conference that Searle is, is leading um, on uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and, and armed conf conflict. Um, and have gathered together a host of experts, many of whom are here in the room for that. Um, that continues through tomorrow, and I would note that uh, tomorrow, Friday, at 4 o'clock, in this very room, there will be a public panel on post-traumatic stress um, issues, implicating the, the question we'll, we'll address today, but, but also broader issues than sexual violence. And so I would invite you all to attend that as well. And I thank you, Claire and, and Searle, for your leadership and sponsorship. I also want to thank um, uh, are relatively, I'm a new dean, um, somebody who has a few months more experience than me here at Penn Law, is our, our associate dean for international affairs, Ramgita Silva de Alves. 
who has brought energy and vision and connectivity to this role and has helped to bring a host of, uh, of prominent international leaders to Penn to share their wisdom, like uh, Undersecretary Andy Gura today. And Ron Gutta uh, will more formally introduce our speaker, and I thank you and the, our Global Programs uh, Office for your support of this. We're also supported by other parts of the university in this lecture, the Evelyn Jacobs Ordner Center on Family Violence, um, and the Penn's Campaign for Community. So uh, with certainly no further ado, I, I, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, Ranga to De Silva to, to come up and um, and more properly introduce our speaker. But I do thank you all for coming. Thanks to Dean Druber's support and vision. Today, Penn Law joins Under Secretary General Zainab Bangura the Special Representative of the Secretary General on Sexual Violence in Conflict in championing her mandate as one of the great moral issues of our time. It is a proud day for Penn Law to host you, Zainab. One of our students, Natasha Anpreister, wrote to me last night to say that your visit to Penn Law is a starstruck moment for her. The truth is we are all starstruck by your heroism. As the chief witness for the world, you bear witness to the most horrific of crimes, rape in war, and your work shakes the very core of our being. As the conscience of the international community, and as the principal voice for all women and girls who face violence in conflict, you have said, I want to be their voice. You have told the story of unspeakable crimes before heads of state and the Security Council and urge governments to take action on one of the greatest humanitarian challenges of our generation. On any given day, you meet hundreds of children in the Democratic Republic of the Congo who are abandoned by their parents because they were born of rape. You meet a father in Mogadishu whose two children have been raped. One is four and one is six. You meet a mother in Liberia whose three-month-old baby has been raped. You meet a mother who has been gang raped by five men in the DRC, and she wants to strangle her child because in the African culture, a child of rape is called a snake. Your journey has taken you from a war-torn Sierra Leone, where you first encountered violence at a very deeply personal level when your father wanted to give you in marriage as a child. You were only 12. You have said growing up that you had no shoes, but you had big dreams. Dreams for yourself and for your country. In your words, to be the best and to do your best. That is why you founded your own political party. And in 2002, you ran for president in Sierra Leone. You have said that real power to make a difference is in policy making. So you accepted the invitation of the Secretary General to serve as the first woman Minister of Finance and then as Minister of Health. We live in an age of unparalleled conflict. When Secretary General Ban Ki-moon invited you to serve as a special representative, the cost of war was being counted in the numbers rate. Rape as a weapon of war has risen to a scale like never before. From the DRC to Syria to Libya to Mali to Nigeria to Somalia, you crisscrossed the globe in an effort to end impunity. In the last 
two or three years, the rise in extremist groups has brought a whole new dimension of sexual violence being used as a tactic of terrorism. ISIS has opened markets where they sell women and girls, in your words, for the price of a pack of cigarettes. You have made visible the less visible costs of war and brought a fierce tenacity to your mandate. First, you have said simply and powerfully, women are targeted in conflict because they are women. You have said that it is still cost-free to rape a woman, child, or man in conflict. As a weapon of war, a woman's body is cheaper than a machete. Second, you have outlined the cost of war in terms of the intergenerational impact of sexual violence. Many women and children have had to live with the devastating impact of these rapes as they have been infected with HIV or sexually transmitted diseases or have given birth to children born of rape. But you have also made visible the sexual violence against men and boys. Third, you have expanded your mandate to examine the nexus between sexual violence and illicit extraction of natural resources. Finally, you stress the positive services for victims, the critical health, psychosocial, legal, and other interventions that they must have to rebuild their lives. The recent global study on UNSCR 1325 and the new UN Security Council Resolution 2242, adopted just two months ago, underscore the importance of women at the table in peace and security. And you at the table have redefined women's security as national security. Despite the hopelessness that you often face in the field, your briefings to the Security Council on conflict-related sexual violence and security sector reform have helped to change legal and political paradigms. We meet today at the midpoint of the global campaign, 16 Days of Activism to End Violence Against Women. Last week, you called upon governments during this campaign to take action to end rape in war. And today, Penn Law is proud to amplify your voice. You urge the Security Council on a daily basis to rededicate their commitments to ending sexual violence in conflict. And today, Penn Law supports that message. Founded by Professor Claire Finkelstein, there is no other academic institute like Penn Law's Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law, which plays the role of powerful interlocutor between academics and policymakers on bringing the rule of law to the most pressing security issues of our time. And today, Searle joins the mission of the United Nations in addressing the visible and invisible costs of sexual violence in conflict and war. I invite Under Secretary General Zainab Bangura to make opening remarks and join <coughs> Professor Claire Finkelstein in a critical global conversation. my friend, Associate Dean for International Program Register, conference participants, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I am delighted to be here with you all for this critical conversation at a critical moment in human history. These are testing times. 
recent events in Paris, Beirut, Egypt, Yemen, Turkey, Tunisia, Mali, Iraq, and Syria suggest that we may be living through the worst wave of terrorism on record. Today, the trauma of violence is amplified by our interconnectedness, particularly the reach and immediacy of the global media. This means that acts of terror, even in far off places, cast a long shadow over all our lives and our psychic. The power of terrorism resides in its randomness and unpredictability. It is a psychological weapon to make us all feel at risk. Indeed, the great battle of the 21st century is between rising violent extremism, which acts back to an age of intolerance and barbarity, and universal human rights, which promise an era of pluralism and shared prosperity. It is a battle of ideas between the Enlightenment and the Dark Ages. Women's rights and freedoms are central to that struggle. The wars wrought by extremist groups in Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Nigeria, and elsewhere are being fought on the bodies of women and girls who are subjected to systematic abuse. What's more, these battles are to a large extent being fought over the bodies of women and girls which are sold and battered as the spoils of war. In areas under ISIL control, women from the Yazidi, Yazidi, Christian, and Turkmenian minorities communities have been claimed a place and exchange for profits, much like the region's plundered antiquities and artifacts. Being reduced to a price tag based on their physical attributes and branded like cattle with the name of their owner in a form of dehumanization is a form of dehumanization that takes a devastating emotional toll. ISIL and its affiliates view women's bodies as mere vessels for producing the next generation of jihadists to populate their self-proclaimed caliphate and project it far into the future. ISIL's conquest entailed both the capture of new territory and the capture of non-Sunni Muslim women and girls. These military objectives are equally intrigued to their nation-building aspiration. ISIL has even established marriage bureaus to encourage women to wed fighters and raise their families. It is staggering that in our own life and times, women and girls have been openly auctioned, sold, and traded in slave markets, reminiscence of the Middle Ages, sometimes for a few thousand dinner, sometimes, as my friend said, as little as a pack of cigarettes. In the political economy of the Syrian conflict, women are part of the currency ISIL uses to consolidate its power. ISIL is not alone. 
Boko Haram has abducted hundreds of girls from their schools in East Nigeria, pursuant to a campaign of forced imprisonment and forced impregnation. The systematic nature of this violence points to a deliberate self-perpetration plan. Prior to rape, insurgents reportedly pray that their actions will produce children to inherit their ideology. The women and girls who have escaped the clutches of Boko Haram suffered grave physical and psychological trauma compounded in many cases by sexually transmitted infection and unwanted pregnancy. My recent visit to sets such as Nigeria, Syria, and Iraq leave me with no doubt that women are first affected and was affected by protracted conflict and displacement. Indeed, a common factor that precedes the rise of extremist groups is their assault on women's autonomy and rights. This includes strict enforcement of traditional dress codes and gender segregation, as well as reducing women to the status of a breeding ground for future fighters. What I witnessed during this visit in these countries made me wonder why extremist groups that seem to harbor no fear of bloodshed or violent death are so afraid of women's freedom. In contemporary theater of conflict, women and girls find themselves under assault every day and with every step they take, whether at border crossing, checkpoints, during house searches, in detention centers, and in the very camps where they seek refuge. The current confluence of global crises, including more than 30 active armed conflicts and level of civilian displacement not seen since the Second World War, threatens to stop or even reverse the progress that has been made on human rights and development. For instance, in Syria before the war, primary school enrollment was almost universal. Now we're witnessing a generation of Syrian children at risk of receiving no education at all. Five years of conflict have reduced this middle-income country to rubble, claimed 250,000 lives, and propelled the world's largest refugee crisis. Many of the neighboring countries in which the 4 million displaced Syrians find themselves do not allow mothers to confer their nationality on both their children. Yet one quarter of displaced households have no father present. This means that every 10 minutes, a child is born stateless and without a birth certificate or identity papers. They are left in a legal limbo. In addition, the war has unleashed a wave of sexual violence, sexual slavery, forced marriage, forced impregnation, and attendant trauma, both individual and collective, that will take generations to heal. Against this bleak backdrop, my mandate to spearhead efforts across the United Nations system to end the scourge of conflict-related sexual violence has become more urgent than ever. Widespread and systematic sexual violence is currently being used as both a tactic of war and a tactic of terrorism. A single incident or threat of rape, especially in socially conservative contexts, can terrorize an entire family or community, forcing them to flee.
The United Nations Security Council, which established my mandate, affirmed that there can be no security without women's security, and no peace without peace of mind for women and their families. I work every day to elevate women's protection and empowerment to the heart of the global policy agenda, including the peace, security, and counter-terrorism agendas, which have classically been gender-blind. My mission is to ensure that sexual violence is no longer sidelined as a stigma to be born in silence. As I have said on many occasions, sexual violence is a great moral issue of our time, an assault on our collective conscience and common humanity. It is time, in fact, it is long past time to move this issue from the margins to the mainstream of international relations, foreign policy, and public debates. In my role as Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict, I work to turn on the volume on an issue that has been called history's greatest silence and the world's least condemned war crime. At the same time, I call for women's leadership and full participation in peace, security, and justice processes. Wartime rape has been an omission of history because women have never <laughs> held the pen with which official records of war and peace are written. Mass rape have been met with mass impunity because peace talks have consisted of men forgiving men for war crimes against women. This shows that women's protection and participation are integrally linked and mutually reinforcing. Accountability for rape as a war crime, crime against humanity, act of torture, and the constituent act of genocide is not optional or negotiable. It is essential for healing and restoring public faith in the rule of law. In my view, prosecution is also a form of prevention. It can help to combat century-old cultures of impunity for sexual and gender-based violence into cultures of deterrence. Prosecuting all perpetrators, irrespective of status or rank, sends a powerful signal that no military or political leader is above the law, and no woman or girl is below it. In the absence of formal accountability, the blame and shame is too often placed on the victim, reinforcing their loss of self-worth. We know that the essence of trauma is powerlessness, powerlessness. Therefore, a meaningful, validating, and empowering judicial process can demonstrate to women that their lives matter. Restoring agency, voice, and dignity to the victims is what it means to deliver justice, not just law. Exposing these crimes to the harsh spotlight of legal scrutiny is part of my mandate. After all, women have no rights if those who violate their rights go unpunished. Victims of war rape experience multiple overlapping traumas. Survivors often describe being twice victimized, once by the crime itself, and again by the police and justice system that trivialize their traumas or puts their own behavior on trial. Moreover, women are still widely viewed as repository of family and community honor 
which means that the stigma and shame of rape is borne by the victim rather than the perpetrator. The violation of women's chastity is seen as an affront to the honor of the family and community, which prides women's virginity and links it with future prospects for marriage and social status. Whereas families and communities should be the first line of support. Rather, victims risk being subject to honor crimes and killings at the hands of their own relations. Until we challenge this cultural construct and address the root causes that embolden perpetrators, women and girls will always be at risk. The risk of reprisal combined with cultural taboos have a chilling effect on reporting. The vast majority of these crimes are simply never documented. Many women have told me that the social repercussions of rape, including isolation and abandonment, are worse than the violence itself. While ISIL fragrantly publicizes its abuses, the women and girls who survive them are shamed into silence, sometimes even suicide. Chronic underreporting is part of the reason that conflict-related sexual violence has a hidden history. Yet we know that no problem has ever been solved through silence. Silence cannot erase and cannot ease the combined trauma of rape and war. Increasing support for women's civil society networks and creating safe spaces where survivors can heal is imperative. The after effects of PTSD intensify dramatically if survivors have no opportunity to report the crime and receive care. This is sadly the case in many remote and war-torn regions. Military attack on medical infrastructure and personnel have a devastating multiplying effect in this regard, making health and psychosocial services less available exactly where they are needed most. Like a stone dropped in still water, the trauma of sexual violence creates multiple effects, ripple effects that extend outwards to affect children, families, communities, and societies as a whole. If left unaddressed, the psychological scars remain beneath the surface of a society, making peace and reconciliation less possible. For a child, it can forever shatter their view of a world of the world as a safe, just, and predictable place. In a longer-term perspective, working with local religious and community leaders to shift harmful social norms and create a supportive environment for survivors is critical. <coughs> to facilitate the return and social reintegration of women and girls released from ISIL captivity. The Yazidi spiritual leader, Baba Sheikh, called for his community to support rather than ostracize these survivors. Altering tradition in this way has been a source of solace to many Yazidi rape survivors who have felt that suicide was their only option. Baba Sheikh told his community, and I quote, they should keep their heads up. They have done nothing wrong, end of quote. It is my hope that other moral authorities in the region will follow this inspiring example. Two weeks ago, I was in Amman, Jordan, 
attending a meeting of religious leaders from the Middle East and North Africa to convey this message. The discussions reinforce my conviction that the role of religious and traditional leaders is critical to break the prevailing silence and ensure that survivors are embraced by their families and communities rather than shunned. Their role is essential to sustain a counter-narrative to ISIL and its affiliates, which pervert the inherited message of peace that is at the heart of the Islamic faith. It will not be enough to defeat ISIS militarily. We must defeat their ideology once and for all. Despite the current media spotlight on the Middle East, it is important to recall that the trauma of conflict-related sexual violence transverses all of history and geography. No one culture, continent, or region, or religion has a monopoly on the scourge. For instance, the mass rape of Bosnian Muslim women during the conflict in the former Yugoslavia was a devastating vehicle of ethnic cleansing and humiliation that tore apart the fabric of families and communities as a whole. The pace of justice for the estimated 20 to 50,000 rapes that occurred during the conflict has been painfully slow, translating into less than 40 prosecutions. In this case, justice delayed is more than justice denied. It is trauma continuing. Many women who survived the rape camps of the early 1990s now endure the trauma of seeing their former assailants in the streets, bar, or supermarket flouting their impunity. The simple fact of knowing that the perpetrator still lives among them can trigger post-traumatic stress. In the absence of official recognition and reparation, Many women are left feeling like second-class victims of a second-class crime. In response, Bosnian women have forged solidarity networks of mutual support, saying, and I quote, we women are Socrates to each other. In South Sudan, a land afflicted by over 50 years of conflict, one woman told me, here we live under the rule of men, not under the rule of law. Indeed, 90% of criminal cases are settled by customary or chief courts, which often prescribe marriage to the perpetrator as a remedy for rape. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, entire villages have been traumatized by mass rape, often inflicted in public for maximum humiliation. This also creates secondary trauma among those forced to be a silent witness to the rape of loved ones. In this way, women's bodies have been used as envelopes to transmit a message of intimidation to men, namely that they are powerless to protect. One survivor testified to the United Nations that rape had created an internal wound, a wound without cure. Children born of rape by rebel militias are subjected to cruelty and violent punishment, being viewed as a tickling time bomb that will eventually inflict harm upon their community. Similarly, in the wake of the Rwanda genocide, children born of rape were labeled by their families and communities as the children of bad memories, with many being abandoned and orphaned. Following the politically motivated mass rape of 100 women in a small West African nation of Guinea in September 2009, Many victims refused to come forward for medical care, 
Owing to the strange stigma attached to sexual violence in this conservative, mostly Muslim society, the women who did come forward reported being abandoned by their husbands and cast out of their homes. One survivor described in three works what she had experienced in the wake of the rape. Rejection, unemployment, homelessness. Widespread sexual violence has also been a driver of forced displacement, displacement during the 50-year conflict in Colombia. The ongoing peace process provides a historic opportunity to transform the status of women in Colombian society. And I have called on all parties to take specific steps to address the scourge of sexual violence, which has otherwise lingered long after the bombs fall silent. In all these contents, psychosocial support is the weakest link, and sometimes even a missing link in the international response. We need to both raise the cost of rape by imposing financial and penal sanctions and increase the reach and quality of assistance to survivors. Allow me to end on a personal note by saying that I speak to you today not only as a United Nations Under Secretary General and not only as a former foreign minister, but as someone who knows firsthand what it means to be culturally devalued because I was born a girl. In a time and place in rural Sierra Leone, when girls were denied education and opportunity, and targeted for violence as a woman who spoke against my nation's civil war, I know how it feels to be forced to flee my country by boat with nothing but the clothes on my back. During the dark days of civil war in my homeland, an estimated 65,000 women were raped, and an entire generation traumatized. The emotional toll of that conflict is a nightmare that still haunts many who live through it, including myself and my family. But like sexual violence, mental trauma does not manifest itself physically. It leaves scars that are invisible, often unrecognized and untreated, yet painfully real. In the wake of the war, I worked to build solidarity networks among women, rallying them together ahead of our first ever democratic election in June 1996. In a country where even the most basic health facilities have been destroyed, we found a form of recovery, healing and hope, in standing together and standing up for peace and political change. As our bond deepened and our cause gained momentum, I witnessed the transformation of those women from victims to survivors. Hope is everything. As the women I met with in Syria told me, this is not our war, but to continue to fight for peace. Empowered women can be a buffer and a bulwark against youth radicalization and repeated cycles of violence, vengeance and vigilante justice. I therefore believe that our best hope for winning the future is to enable the next generation to be raised under the influence of educated, powered women, mothers, rather than under the shadow of icing black flag. When I visited Iraq in April, I met two young Yazidi girls, age 11 and 15, who had survived ISIL captivity. They had since abandoned their studies, 
because of the extreme trauma and deep shame of what had endured, what they had endured. I told them that pursuing their dreams would be the greatest blow they could strike to the ideology of militants who held them captive. These guards have since been resettled in Germany, and I was reunited with them on a visit to Berlin. I found them greatly changed. Today, they are filled with hope. One aspires to be a teacher, and the other a doctor. When I think about the faces of these brave girls, and of all the women I have met around the world, I am convinced that our collective moral challenge is to relegate wartime rape to the past and guarantee the survivors a brighter, better future. Remember, history does not make people. People make history. Transcending the great social ends of our age will always seem impossible until it is done. Thank you. Representative Bangura, that was a wonderful talk, and we're so grateful to have you here to discuss this very important topic. One of the things that you have really helped to put on the map and that the United Nations has focused on uh, much more in recent years is not just rape in war, but rape as a weapon of war. So that it's not just in the chaos of war, we find an increase in sexual violence against women, but the intentional use of rape to defeat an enemy. Has this always been with us through history, or is this something that grows out of changes in the nature of modern warfare? Is it increasing with new asymmetrical warfare and the rise of terrorism and its relation to armed conflict? I think it's both. I had a very interesting experience when I came. I actually had a visit to the Pentagon. I was talking to them about, because at that time we were trying to engage military in different states and countries we were working with to develop a plan of action on how to make sure the military actually can conform. And that was when I was informed that Lincoln, during the Civil War, actually gave a directive to the US military how to treat prisoners of war, and he specifically instructed them not to sexually abuse them. It's always been there. But people have been reluctant to talk about it. When I visited California and the library we have just we are just discovering that over thirty percent of the unemployed victims were raped. And there was a lot of mass raping that took place of victims of Holocaust. Some of the videos I watched, some of these people have never spoken about it throughout their life. The first time they spoke about it was when they were in They never told their family. So it's the silence about it. It's the culture of silence and denial. And also because when the World War II history was written, it happened, but it was written by men. People don't accept it. It's a crime, you have to look for it. If you don't look for it, you don't ask questions, you never answer. When I started talking, I did the first conference, like my friend said, oh, men and boys, 
Nobody ever they talks when you talk about trade and competition about women. But then when I started investigating, I found out there's a lot of history of torture, men were being tortured. But one of the things we found out with rape against men and boys, it's normally done in prison, in a closed facility to solicit information. It's huge in Syria during the beginning of the conflict because they want to solicit information about the fight about the opposition. So it's used in prison in detention facility to torture men to get information from them to get out. So rape has always been there. I think we have more conflicts now, and I agree with you, because the dynamics of conflicts has changed, we have more interstate conflict, which means people are fighting for political power, for resources. So what best way you can reduce a community or destroy them, go after their most vulnerable their women? It's the pride. When I visited BRC, I had a very difficult experience. There was a community a year before I visited where about 11 babies between the ages of 6 to 12 months had been raped, and 59 between the ages of 3 and 5. These people targeted the children. And I said to myself, people said, oh no, they want to use it to treat AIDS, HIV. I said, no. What best way do you destroy a community that go after the children and women? Because you destroy the people who make the next generation. You destroy the women. And you destroy the children because you want to kill them. So I think it's there, it's being used, that's why we say it's being used as a weapon, you know, and it's very, very important. So it's always been there. Of course, it's increased. We have more conflicts now. We have more internal conflict, state conflict. And of course, with the new dimension of extremists, it's taken a whole new dimension. That's a whole completely different So again, if we distinguish between a failure of a commander to control his troops, who go out and rape prisoners or to control his guards versus using rape in order to defeat an enemy. What is the goal and what is the thinking behind this last sort of systematic use of rape as a weapon of war? You know, with regards to commanders, what we have discovered, because I just had my colleagues came back working with the South Sudanese um, SPL in opposition. So we actually had to visit their area of control on Paga, on the border between Ethiopia and South Sudan. I do feel that commanders have a lot of responsibility because sometimes they turn a blind eye, sometimes they give instructions, you go after, sometimes because they don't pay them, these people are going to lose. So one of the things we have been doing, working with military and non-state actors, we started first with the South Sudan, this is our first experience. We insist that commanders take responsibility. So in a plan of action, each and every commander in South Sudan, from the Lieutenant General, we have about, I think, over 50 commanders, we start with the whole day, we got their names, we got them to, we explain to them what it means, the amount of crime they are committed, and we got them to make an undertaking to say, if a crime is committed by anybody in my unit, I take responsibility. I am the one that is going to be taken to court, and that's what we did with the DRC government. Once we did that with the military of defense, in the military of the DRC, we saw a 50% reduction in sexual violence within the military. We saw an increase in 150, 139 prosecution, including the general, because we held them responsible. We say, if your people commit this kind of rape, you have, it means you have not instructed them, you have not told them the repercussion, you have not punished them. 
So we strengthened the military justice system in the DRC. Now we're working with the South Sudanian opposition. We're working with the two parties, both the government military and the South Sudanian opposition, to be able to create the mechanism within their military to hold their military accountable. So I do believe it's a crime that is also commanded. But most important, they turn a blind eye to it. And so when you hold them accountable and responsible, and you say, if this happens in you, you're going to be punished. You can, we have seen a reduction in the countries where we work. And perhaps turn a blind eye for military purposes. That's the crucial thing. Let's talk for a minute about the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. So we've just celebrated the 15-year anniversary of that resolution, um, which uh, on women, peace, and security, and called for special measures to increase women's participation in peace processes and to protect them from conflict-related gender-based violence. How much progress has there been since that resolution was passed, and has that resolution had an impact in your view? For me personally, I think the important issue is the resolution that's actually laid the foundation for my work. So that was the beginning of the whole issue of how does conflict affect women. So it, 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 it has led to the creation of my office. It has led to the recognition of wartime rape as an international peace and security that requires um, a, a, a response that will be appropriate to the crimes. It has, it has laid a foundation for us developing the monitoring, analysis, and reporting mechanism. The first important issue when I took the job for me, I said, United, Security, United Nations Security Resolution are as good as they are in New York. What you need to do is how do you turn resolutions into solutions on the ground? Because you have to go into the countries where the crimes have been committed, and I think that's where the resolution has failed, 1325 has been lacking because action has not been taken on the ground. This is where the crimes have been committed. We have to hold them accountable. We have to force them to provide the necessary leadership that is required to take this issue, to go after the people who commit the crime, to be able to provide the support that is needed for victims, to have women on the table during peace processes. And it has been extremely difficult. Right. And so the, the issue, because negotiations after war is about men sharing the spoils of war. Women are not leaders of conflict. So the challenge we've had is that with men, when they sit on the table, they talk about what am I going to benefit? These people who have fought war. <coughs> Women, when they sit on the table, they talk about what are we going to have? How am I going to have peace? What about security? How can I go and fetch water without being raped? How can I go to the market? How can I have education for my children? So that's the biggest challenge. And I think the best, most successful experience I can give you is the Colombian negotiation process. When the process started, because of the force of the women and everybody, the Colombian, both parties set what you call the gender commission. And the gender commission is to look at each of the negotiated agreements between the Colombian parties and give it a gender perspective, which has been extremely experienced. And the victims of sexual violence actually went to Havana to actually explain to the puppet, the parties to the conflict, what they went through. I also went to Havana. I met the two parties. So it was a very interesting, because before I went there, 
Both parties said, we don't want the UN to be involved. I spent a couple of days with the parties individually and together and sat down with the women. When I left, they requested for the UN to provide support. That's right. That's a great success story, yes. at least the beginning of a success story. Can we talk for a minute about accountability? Because you mentioned accountability and that violence against women will not stop until there is real accountability of perpetrators. There are different forms that accountability can take. And uh, we are very stymied in general, and it's a great challenge to bring international crimes to justice. Uh, the International Criminal Court has a mixed uh, record in that regard of successfully prosecuting such cases. And um, in many cases, we have to sit back and allow these prosecutions to take place in the home countries where the offenses occurred and where the countries may or may not be dedicated to bringing perpetrators to justice. What is, in your view, the greatest hope for accountability with regard to uh, sexual crimes uh, in war? I think we have to deal with this both at the international and national level. You know, with people coming in countries going through conflicts, with people who are very powerful and strong, it's extremely difficult to try them in their own country. We saw it with Charles Taylor, we saw it with Jean Bemba, with the DRC. So I think the, the, the ICC has to, has to be given the opportunity to try cases for security reasons and people who are extremely powerful. But the experience I had in Sierra Leone is that with the special courts, we, we said those who bear the greatest responsibility. For a woman who has been raped, she wants the person who has raped her to be prosecuted. She needs to connect a healing process to seeing punishments for the person directly responsible. So that's why both at the international level and the national level, you need to have the laws in place. Because the UN Security Council has laid the framework in terms of having a global legal framework on that this is a war crime, it's a crime against humanity, it's a peace and security issue. But we still have to work at the national level as we speak, I'll tell you, rape in war is still not a crime in some countries. I mean, I won't name the country, but there's a country I'm working with right now, which I'll be visiting in March, where it's a crime against the moral. It's not a crime against the person. So that's why in my office I have what we call the team of experts who are actually lawyers from UNDP, from Department of Peacekeeping, from the Office of the High Commissioner, all in my office, to actually support countries. In Guinea, where I spoke about the 109 women who were raped, the Security Council asked for an international commission of inquiry, which came out with a report. That's the end of it, yes, the crime happened. 150 people or so got missing, disappeared. 109 women were raped, and these are the recommendations. The ICC went there and actually started preliminary investigation. The numbers were too huge for the ICC to take. So what we did was actually visit the country and say to the government, let's help you deal with this problem. 
We have roster in our office. So we deployed the former Chief Justice and Minister of Justice in Mauritania. We asked the government to give us a panel of judges. So we provide logistics and technical expertise and work with them within a period of three years. They interviewed 400 victims. We've had 16 indictments, including the former head of states. So I just visited Guinea how to work with the government to make sure we start the prosecution. Because most of the people who are, who are indicted are high-level military. So we're working together with, IC, with ICC. So ICC, if you don't take action, this is what I will do. So we're working together. So we're using international and national mechanism. So the ICC is there. They have staff. They visit. Fatu and I talk about it regularly. So Fatu is there to get the government to say, listen, you're working with her. Either you get something done, or I can come in. So if we have people, for example, who are high-level military people, and the government cannot, for any reason, the ICC has the leverage to actually indict them. When you look at different models of accountability, so you might compare these very time-consuming, sometimes ultimately um, victorious individual prosecutions versus, for example, truth and reconciliation commissions. Where do you see the best hope for uh, deterrence as well as healing for the victims? Uh, I think you have to apply both. both. You really have to apply both, because in my country, we, we applied both mechanisms, the special court, the judicial process. We also had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because you need to deal with this. You need to ask yourself, how come somebody can rape a three-month-old baby? And people need to understand it's a crime that is punishable by law. So you need to talk about it. You need to understand it. You need to heal. Some people, you might not be able to prosecute some, but you find other mechanisms and ways to punish them in the society. But the community and the society generally have to understand this is unacceptable. You can only do that through, through a truth and reconciliation. Do you really tell like what they did in South Africa? So I do believe you have to use both mechanisms. And I think you need to combine it also with the international mechanism. Because like I said earlier on, that also has to be addressed for high level people because if, if, if a former head of state is tried in a country, it's politics, he has supporters. They will put a lot of pressure on the present leadership. It makes it almost impossible. This is not like the United States. Talk about a small country where everybody knows everybody, where people have influences and their support is based on ethnicity, on religion, it's not on idea, oh, this one is, has this, he wants our children to know. This man comes from our communities, he's a big man, so you can't touch him. He's like an umbrella to communities. And so once you touch him, they think the umbrella has been folded, and they're not having any part of the cake, the national cake. I'm, I'm not so sure we don't have that in this country. However, <laughs> let me, let me um, ask you to comment on a speech you gave at the African Union in, uh, in 2013, where you said that Quote, one of the worst forms of discrimination faced by women is sexual violence in conflict. The consequences of rape and other forms of sexual violence often linger long after the conflict has ended. Mental illness is common and survivors of rape often face depression, anxiety, disorders, flashbacks, difficulties in reestablishing intimate relationships and fear, the common long-term psychological impacts of this crime. Can you talk about the psychological impact of 
the use of rape in combat and give us some sense of the scale of the mental health problems that the world faces as a result. You know, when I went to Bosnia, one of the women I spoke to, I was talking to them and the woman in describing what happened, she said, you took my life away without killing me. Mm -hmm. And another victim said, we were talking to her, how do we move forward? She said, I cannot talk about the future because the past will always be with me. And it becomes extremely difficult for women to move. And in Bosnia, again, what we found out, trauma increases with women who have been raped, especially when they have, they have babies. Because when the children are young, they tell the children, the father is dead, he died in the war. When the child gets older, he starts asking, who is my uncle? Who is, you mean my father didn't have a sister? Didn't have a brother? And that's pain, the punishment of that woman. How can she face to tell the child? When I went to visit NATO headquarters, I spoke to one of the assistant surgeons. She was telling me a story in, in Croatia where a woman was raped and she had a child. And as the two children grew up, she had one child before the rape and she had another child out of the rape. And the older boy started hearing rumor in the village to say that the younger brother was born out of rape. And so, at one time, he was able to confront the mother. <coughs> and the mother said, no, it's not true. And he said, I'm happy because I should have killed him. How does dealing with PTSD as a result of sexual violence in combat compare with the PTSD outside of a combat setting? We've had much discussion on campuses about sexual violence on campus. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about dealing with such crimes in these two very different contexts. You know, for me, rape is rape. In conflicts, the person is already traumatized, maybe displaced. You know, is in a situation where she's extremely vulnerable. There's sort of, you double the trauma on her. And she is much more vulnerable because she can't fight back. If you are raped here, you can go to the police station and you make a statement. If you're raping war, one of the first causes of conflict is the rule of law. So you're raped in war, what can you do? In my own country, when I was investigating the wartime rape, I met a woman who had a girl who had seven children as of seven rape. She had all the children with her. What do you do? So the fact that in conflict, you don't have any mechanism, you don't have any way to report, you don't have any ability to access medical and psychosocial support. It ca you carry it much deeper. But rape basically is to dehumanize, degrade, and that's what wartime rape is about, to dehumanize, to degrade, to show you that you can't do anything. I have control over you. So it's the vulnerability of the person at a particular time that makes it more difficult in rape because at the end of the day, there's nothing. There's no mechanism for you. So that is the reason why we're fighting to make sure working with NGOs and talking to donors to increase the amount of resources, you know, for women to be able to have the medical and psychosocial support. And when I met this year, for me, it was such a traumatic experience. 
I left Abir or Lanish, which is 50 kilometers from Mosul, in a lot of pain. Because talking to those women, talking to this guy, one of the women I met, which was one of the most difficult stories I had to deal was this woman, when a village was captured, she found herself, when they captured the people in Iraq, they separate the men and they execute all the men. That's why you have a lot of mass graves. And the women, they divide them into three groups. The old women and the women with children, and they try to take the children for them to go and train them and indoctrinate them. And the old women and the married women executes them. Then they have the women without children, and then they go, the ones that they really want are the young girls. And so they examine them, whether they are virgin. So imagine a girl who is 12 years old, taken from her home, and then she has to be examined by a woman. So this woman found herself in this room with 14 of the girls for her to look after the girls so they cannot escape. It turned out a lot of them were her nieces and cousins, they all come from the same village. She was in such a state of shock. She took the decision to kill herself and the girls, to commit suicide. And so she found poison, she gave all the girls, they drank, all of them including herself, and they started vomiting and throbbing, and at that time, the people came for them, and they realized something had happened, so they took them all to the hospital, they cleaned their system, removed them, and then of course they tortured them. She managed to escape with seven of the girls. She lost seven. And I met this woman sitting there, she was looking far away, and she was telling me the story, and I just went on with tears running down my eyes. And she said, it's better if I die. He said, because I, I just couldn't believe when they started taking the girls, and you could hear the girls scream in the next room when they were being And she was sitting there with the other girls, just to keep them still, so that they come and take one after the other. What do you do to somebody like that, with somebody like that, when she managed to escape? So one of the things I succeeded in Germany, actually getting 300 of the girls. I'm now going to write to various governments. I've spoken to the Australians, the Canadians, a few others, to see what we can do to get these girls out who have gone through this trauma, to be able to get them into hospital, provide health facilities, and psychosocial trauma counseling. So it's extremely difficult. That's how I visited two of the girls in Germany. What is the position of women who have been raped under Islamic extremism and in areas controlled by ISIS, ISIL, Al-Qaeda? How, how does that context affect the victim's experience of the violence they've encountered? Well, as I said, I visited um, Iraq. Of course, I went to Damascus, I went to Baghdad. I went to Jordan in the camps, I went to Turkey in the refugee camps. The problem with ISIS is the multiple rape, because ISIS sell the girls. So with ISIS, their girls are exchanged several times. So it's not only that one person rape, because in most conflicts, like in the DRC, in South Sudan, they attack, they rape, and they disappear, or they kill you. In the ISIS where you're captured, you're held as a slave. So you're moved from one person. So when one person buys you as a sex slave, if she's that, because all of the girls said to me, all of the people they were married of to had wives. 
they are real wives. So he takes you, he buys you as a sex slave, he sleeps with you, and then the next day he sells you to another person. If he doesn't want you or not useful, he takes you to the open market and somebody buys you. And in that culture, there is no concept of rape because you're a commodity. You're a commodity. You're, right, so it's I not even, these women cannot say to themselves even, I have been raped because that concept is not even in the culture. I met a girl who was 21 years of age. She had been traded off 22 times in two years. And each time she was traded, this was by a trafficker now, she was taken to a doctor to be stitched, so make her a virgin, so that she can be sold for a higher price, because virgin fetch higher price. So I met her in a shelter, but lucky she's in a shelter because they were able to come back. So obviously that's the biggest challenge. So the rape in ISIS controller is different with the rape normally we have seen in most conflict countries. Because they keep the women, because ISIS has territory it controls. So you live without, within that vicinity and you're traded off to one fighter and the other. So you're raped multiple times. So most of the girls I met have been sold off four or five times. This is a uh, nearly invisible part of the challenge in fighting ISIS. And it needs much greater attention, the kind of attention that you are bringing to it, but in the mainstream news media. And we very much hope that your work will be drawn to the attention of the world uh, to a greater degree. I'd like to invite the audience now to um, Ask a question of Representative Van Moore. We have microphones here in the back, and um, or we can pass them around. Perhaps the best thing would be if you want to ask a question, come up to the microphone. That would be that would be great. Are we functional there? Sanderson from Temple University Pan-African Studies Department. So I'm trying to figure out, is there any way possible that a stipulation about the rape of women can go into the war crimes laws? Because I, I see quite often that certain things that are, that are done on war, war crimes can be brought to Hague or whatever. So is the possibility of stipulating on a board base level about how it's illegal to practice rape and, and war? Is that possible? Uh, the, the ICC within the last two years, I think, two years, they actually have a gender-based violence policy. The ICC prosecution, prosecutor has made it a condition that in every country that she's investigating crime, she investigates crime of rape. Because it's a war crime, it's a crime against humanity. And so what we're trying to do, I visited the ICC to have discussion with the judges, because I realized within the last two years, they've actually had a lot of indictments, but they've not had a successful prosecution. <clears throat> so I went to engage the judges to find out what is it that we can do. And I think the challenge we have with rape is the evidence. 
You have to collect the evidence at a particular time. You need to protect that evidence to be able to present it in a court of law in a way in which you can have a successful prosecution. So collecting evidence for prosecution is different from what we do, collecting information for reporting. So we are now trying to work with the ICC judges to see what can be done in countries. So this is why we need to go to the next step. But yes, it's a war crime is being prosecuted, but we've not had successful prosecution. And one of the challenges there is, of course, the ICC will turn down a case if the home country is willing and able to conduct the process. It's a cause of last resort. Yeah. yeah. One, you have to be, you have signed the statute, the Rome statute, and secondly, it's a cause of last resort. So that's why we are working in countries to strengthen their judicial system to be able to take process, especially where you have a lot of rape cases. So you don't want to take all of them to the ICC. It's not possible. It's very expensive to take all the witnesses, you know, the defense lawyer, the prosecutor, and everybody. So you try in the countries to actually increase the political will for the government to be able to make sure they will take the necessary action that is required, which, as I said, we have succeeded in the DRC. We're working in the legal system in Colombia. We're working with the Ministry of Justice. In South Sudan, it's the same thing. It's in Central African Republic, we still have the same challenge. Because we found out there's no institutional structure to document crimes of rape. So we are working with about 100 gender married to create. We have to rent a house for them, office. We have to train them. We have to provide the logistics. So people can actually go somewhere in Central African Republic to report rape. But the police is not functioning. There's no institution. So those are all the challenges that we have. Let's let in another question. Uh, I'm Marjorie Mekov, a nurse anthropologist in the School of Nursing. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for bringing this neglected issue forward with such knowledge and conviction. <coughs> During your talk, you mentioned briefly the role that children were born of these rapes. I wonder if you would elaborate a little on what you think the role of law might be in dealing with these children. Um, it's, it's one of the issues that we have found out that a lot of interest is not being or effort being put on dealing with that issue. So even for us, and which is why I have been working with universities, to try to actually embark on more research and in-depth. So we also have to understand it. What we have discovered is like men and boys, now we have to accept that men and boys are being raped. Nobody has done a lot of work on what's the effect on the children and the consequences of rape on children who have been born out of rape. It's becoming a huge issue in Colombia. They are in their 50s. Because the way in Colombia has been 50 years, so you have people who are 50 years who are actually children born out of rape. And then their children, the next generation, then is there a kind of... And then in, it's going to be a huge problem because when I visited the Middle East, I think for these like 17 children, so we have nearly like 40,000 now. What are we going to do to all those children? So we are trying to actually get people to be able to help us to understand that phenomenon and to be able to look for answers. So we're still not there yet. Because the mandate, my office is five years old. You know, so we're still, a lot of these issues are just coming out in the open. It's a big problem, and we have raised it to the Security Council, and we're going to raise it again in the report that is coming out 
in March next year as one of the key issues that has to be dealt with by the Security Council and by the UN system. So I wanted to follow up you on just introduce a, yourself first. Sure, uh, Professor Jens Olin, Cornell Law School. I wanted to follow up on um, a few of your um, remarks. Uh, at various times, you spoke a lot about impunity and the need to end impunity in this in this area for for sexual crimes and armed violence. Uh, several times, you also um, mentioned Colombia and the difficult situation they've had uh, in Colombia, um, and then. Uh, several times you've referred to your great colleague, Fatou Bensouda, the Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, and I wanted to ask a question to, to connect those three, and specifically I wanted to ask whether or not you think that ending impunity requires punishment, and does ending impunity require a certain level of punishment? Um, and the reason why I bring up Colombia is because, as, as you know, there's been a peace process which by and large has been very successful, but one uh, sort of central piece of that peace process has been a political settlement which caps a limit on the punishment available to some of the individuals who could face prosecution. Um, and uh, of course you've also mentioned uh, Fatou Bensouda and the, and the ICC, and that's one calculation that she has to make when deciding whether or not the ICC has jurisdiction to intervene, she has to evaluate the legitimacy of the local prosecution. Well, the local prosecution includes either some sort of political settlement that limits the punishment, or you could imagine another country where there's an outright amnesty and the perpetrators don't receive any punishment at all, but maybe are subject to some other kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some kind of other uh, less penal sense of accountability the, you have to ask uh, what exactly is uh, anti-impunity and what does that mean? Uh, and does it entail punishment? Thank you very much. With the specific regard to Colombia, I think one of the, the commitments we're able to have from the parties is that you cannot give amnesty for sexual violence. That has been accepted by all of them. That's where sexual violence has been committed, you have to ensure there is accountability. The challenge when I visited Colombia was that the arguments they were saying that both parties committed atrocities. And they will not be the force, the fact, this is a fact, the force to send themselves to prison. So the issue, the chapter on right of victim has been an extremely difficult negotiation. I don't know whether they have concluded, but I think everybody, I remember just before I went to Kofi Annan was there to talk about the accountability mechanism. I, I think I'm supposed to go there in February, but we have made it very clear to them and we've got them to consent that you cannot give amnesty for crimes of sexual violence committed. Most of the victims of sexual violence actually appear in front of both parties, in fact. And I think that's what changed the dynamics, because once those victims <coughs> went and addressed both the parties, they now realize the magnitude of the extent of the problem. And I know Fatu also decided, I haven't spoken to her about Colombia, but the government of Colombia, it's a very difficult, 
The military in Colombia is very strong. It's a constitu constituency on its own. And they also don't want to be held accountable. So it's a very difficult negotiation. And I think they are still working on it. And I haven't, I haven't listened to them for about a couple of weeks. But I know that with regards to the most recent agreement, we have to give warning on what we would like into the agreements and the conclusion on the rights of victims. So we're still fighting the battle. But I think what has become very clear is that everybody has said to them, there has to be some accountability. There has to be. What and how is the challenge? That's what it is. That's why we ask for time to go with Colombia. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Hawa Saleh. Uh, I'm the survivor of genocide in Darfur. And uh, last uh, 10 years, I was in the IDP camps as a refugee camp. And today, my family is still uh, 13 years in the camp. Uh, thank you, Bangura. And uh, thank you also, uh, Penn University School of Law, for organizing this, uh, this event. And uh, <coughs> the uh, the first question that I, I really want to ask Magura, I listening to, since in the beginning of, uh, of her lecture, and uh, where it was very well focusing about the violence against women and sexual violence. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't hear about Darfur. Um, Darfur, uh, also, uh, less than 13 years, uh, thousands of women being raped. And uh, this rape being also used as a weapon of war uh, by the government of Sudan and the militia of Djibouti. And uh, the same sexual violence and, and rape being used uh, as a weapon of war is still continuing until today, 13 years. And um, this is also uh, is in the table of uh, UN Security Council, uh, United Nations. And especially UN Security Council being referred the case of Darfur to ICC. And, uh, but unfortunately, the, the people whom they uh, commit uh, crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity uh, is still free. It's, nothing happened. And uh, there is also the, the, the UN uh, peacekeeper in the ground, also in Darfur. And, uh, and, and, one thing that I've been uh, very much uh, learning about also the UN and the mission that's for the peacekeeper, they have a lack of, uh, of a mandate. And I hope that also uh, Bangura mandate is not the same mandate that's been just writing a report and nothing being changed. The situation among women, the sexual violence is continuing, but nothing being changed like protection women uh, to stop those who commit crimes daily. And, um, and, and, and also Darfur situation is still, and, and I didn't hear about, uh, her, about Darfur situation. And uh, last October uh, 2014, uh, the misrape is still continued. 200 women being raped as, as over three days uh, in Darfur. And, and this has just been silent. It's never been speak up, even the UN Security Council. Um, last July, 
I have uh, testified to UN Security Council uh, about the Darfur situation and about the mandate for the protection of women and children in the ground. And uh, what I learned that also, there is very big gap in, in the world leaders, especially the UN Security Council members. They are not united. So to have a strong commitment that's to protect the women in the ground. And I hope that you can also improve uh, your mandate that's to have some decision to protect the women, not just the report and talk. We need to protect for the women. And, and that, that was really uh, the good solution that's the home also commit those crimes to arrest, to face the justice. The government of Sudan today, the five years, uh, he also been, uh, uh, he's been announced by the ICC as international criminal court to be arrested. But he's still free, he's still traveling. And the international community also need a lot of greater support from the international, uh, from the UN Security Council, from the all bodies from the UN to arrest those people who they commit those crimes to face accountability. So maybe uh, we can translate your question into the thought that it's all very well and good to have leadership from the UN on this, but if world leaders are not going to follow suit, nothing will happen and these crimes will continue. And how effective can the UN be? That you seem that, to be asking. That's yeah. right. It's the, the, the effect is uh, to do something is top this. But unfortunately, this is continuing, and the UN reported, but, but there's still nothing being changed. We, we thank you so much for your willingness to come here to join us and to speak of your, your experience. Um, you know, um, Darfur is, I have to say, is one of the failures of the international community. It's, it's, it's a forgotten war. And it also has created a lot of lessons for us and challenges what not to do, how to do things. Therefore, it's one of the countries which I'm supposed to cover. We've not been able to deploy somebody there. My predecessor, Margot, who is now the foreign minister for Sweden, was not allowed to visit. I have still not been allowed to visit. The first challenge we have also with the UN is that it's a hybrid mission. Interestingly, the new deputy special representative came to see me yesterday, and I was talking to her what strategy she needs to use to actually get her to operate in that form. Because the AU, it's an AU and UN mission, but the AU has not been very active in getting, because AU summits are the only summit Bashir attends, very few other than the Arab League. And the AU, therefore, has power to be able to hold Bashir accountable. So in that form, they've, they've definitely abandoned the mission to the UN. As far as they're concerned, the UN pays the bill, so the UN should deal with it. So I said to her, you must go to the UN, because I was going to visit Darfur, and I went and spoke to Mrs. Zuma, who is the chairperson for the EU. She agreed 
to actually have UN staff accompany me, then we had the rape that she spoke about, uh, Tabit, mm -hmm. rape. Yes, which created a whole lot of problem, and the way the whole thing was handled also had a lot of problem. That's one issue. So it's an issue that has to be dealt with between the UN and the AU. And I think the UN has a lot. They, sorry, the AU has a lot of responsibility in which they will be able to help to solve the problem of that for us. One. The second thing I remember when I came. Yeah, and is the, I'm just let me interrupt you for a second. Is the will there of the AU's part of so that's the will you have to push. So that's one thing that needs, because when Tabit happened, I spoke to our colleagues in DPKO because it's a peacekeeping mission. I spoke to them. We went through it. I was asked by the Security Council to brief them on Tabit, the rape that she said, the massive rape. So even when we send investigators, the, the government, the Sudanese government refused to allow them. They completely flooded the village with military people in the houses, in the home, so that our investigation could not access the victims. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult area to operate because the government is just refusing to get things done. The second issue, when I came from the Middle East, I actually visited the International Court of Justice and the International the Court ICC. And I tried to explain to them some of the challenges that I had in that form and what legal structure we can put. Because you taking Syria and Iraq are not signatures to the Rome Statute. So you cannot actually get the ICC to go in. And the ICC can also intervene in terms of nationality. They don't have evidence, the citizens. We have over people from over 100 countries who have joined ISIS. So what accountability mechanism do you create to actually try those people at the end of the day? So I took the time to go and sit down to the judges and said, I know that a lot of crimes have been committed. We need to start thinking about creating an accountability mechanism with regards to crimes committed in Syria and Iraq. And the majority of the judges said to me, not all of them, said, you know, the experience we've got with Sudan, wherein Security Council has referred the Sudan to the ICC, but they didn't give the resources, they didn't follow it up with their powers, because I was in South Africa when Bashir went for the African Union Summit, when civil societies went to court for him, because South Africa has not only is not only a signature to the Rome Statute, but it has domesticated it. So it's really under an obligation to arrest him, but he didn't. So what power does the Security Council have to enforce the failure of South Africa in this case? So the 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 the, 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 the people said to me, don't the judges said to me. We don't want to deal with Syria because we've not been able to deal with Sudan. So how can you bring refer Syria to us when you will not give us the money to finance the investigation, the prosecution, and you will not give us the power to force and force countries to deliver these people? So what is the best source of leverage that the international community has 
Well, that's what they are saying. So I think there has to be that discussion between the ICC, judges, and the Security Council. They have to have that discussion. And I know recently that the president of the ICC was here. She came to see me, and she actually went to brief talk to the security. I didn't know what the outcome of it because I, I traveled and there, but I actually she came to see me because you know we've been exchanging ideas, talking with her because for me the crimes that have been committed in Syria and Iraq are too much. So we need the we need to find solutions. We don't want to wait until the war is over and they say what do we do with these people? My opinion is we should start talking now. And so I do believe that a lot more effort should be put should put on the issue of Sudan and therefore, and I think for me it's a forgotten conflict because the world is now being overwhelmed by Syria, Central African Republic, South Sudan, you know, and that's the biggest challenge the international community has because if you don't have the media on this conflict, it shifts to the next one. And I think they are too overwhelmed, I have to be honest. And so we need to find a mechanism to push to remind people that therefore is still there. On that note, please join me in thanking Representative Bamford.